Welcome to the Ask Different Podcast, an unofficial podcast about Apple created by members of the Ask Different community. I'm Kyle Cronin, and joining with me today is Jason Salas. What's going on, Jason? Hey, Kyle. I'm a bit uh, under the weather, so I hope I don't my uh, coughs don't provide too much of an intrusion, but I'm here for the day. Sounds good. And we've got Nathan Greenstein. Nathan, how are you? I'm all right. I'm enjoying the slightly fewer clouds than usual in Seattle. <laughs> Sounds good. I wanted to get started today with a little bit of Stack Exchange news. Um, looks like they've been doing some improvements on the Stack Exchange primary site. Jason, did you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, it's pretty interesting to see that Stack Exchange is finally starting to take, mostly because they can finally shun their Stack Exchange 1.0 product, as they called, when they used to sell the site contents to other individuals that wanted to run it on their own, uh, run it for their own topics. They're taking the StackExchange.com domain and actually putting network-wide facilities on there. They've been kind of going towards this for a period of time, but now they finally have a full-site network profile, so you get aggregated uh, reputation among other personal details, uh, should I say uh, other specific account details. And then the part that's really gotten me is that they're actually starting to allow you to browse the entire network's questions subject to the filters that you choose to use um, so that you could get potentially if you have a if you have a programming question be it literal or figurative you could look for relevant content on programmer stock stack exchange on stack overflow and perhaps even integrating it with something on server fault so they've they've allowed you to define tags that you like and optionally specific sites to limit it to uh, and you can go around and grab, sort of by all the same common things, votes, answers, uh, general traffic, and it's just a very nice aggregate function that they've started adding to encompass the the rapidly increasing sites in the Stack Exchange portfolio. Yeah, that's true. There's also some overlap between certain sites, like uh, for our site, Ask Different has a lot of overlap between uh, super user because Mac questions are allowed on both sites. So what I've done is I've created a a tag set that will give me all the Mac questions on the entire network as opposed to the ones that are on the specific site. So it makes it easier to to find questions based on that. Mm. This is going to make it quite a bit handier for Linux users, especially because uh, while the Unix and Linux, unix.stackexchange.com site is great, there's a treasure trove of content over at uh, SuperUser and likely a server fault equally as much. Uh, and to be able to aggregate all of that in one common place is going to prove very beneficial. Uh, something, some Absolutely something worth going to uh, just to kind of see what it's capable of and what how it may integrate into your workflow. Stackexchange.com, check it out. Yeah, one of the things that they... They haven't really updated it recently, but uh, one of the things I like about StackExchange.com is when you go there, right on the front page is a list of hot questions, uh, and they're questions from the across the entire network that are popular um, recently. So I I like going there. I like looking at you know questions on sites that I would never even think to visit, and just learning about all the sort of different stuff, and it's it really gives you sort of a, a wide array of different topics and and interesting questions based on those topics so uh, it it really is a very very good aggregate site i was reading online the other day that uh, apparently the white iphone's out uh do you have any thoughts on that 
Well, ap- you're right. After far too long, the other color of the iPhone 4 has been released, and it looks like it's about the same with white plastic instead of black plastic, and an extra two millimeters of 0.2, 0.2 millimeters of thickness than the black one, which shouldn't affect it fitting in your case or even in your hand, but some people seem to care about that. Yeah, it's definitely but, been a long time coming. It, uh, yeah. It's one of those few uh, Apple snafus that they, they really made a serious error, but looks like they were determined to get it out eventually, and, and uh, I'm glad to see that it's finally out, mm-hmm. although the, the size difference is a bit bizarre. You gotta wonder about that, just in the sense that they have like the. I, I haven't actually had one in hand yet, but a friend of mine has a white 3GS, and it was it was it was white plastic. It was solid. It was pretty much standard. But from a lot of the pictures that I've seen, the white iPhone 4 looks a little, like a little milky. Like it seems like in certain areas, it's not it's not solid. And I've kind of noticed the same effect at certain angles, certain pictures of the iPad 2 as well. It's just a little surprising to me that the iPad 2 came out, uh, it hasn't quite been two months yet, but nearly two months ago, and they didn't have nearly these production problems with it, and yet the iPhone 4, as similar as it looks, still had that lead time to just finally release this week. Maybe it's not the same process, I don't know, it's just, there's there's similarity there that is curious to me. Yeah, it's a bit unusual to think that, you know, there's a lot more stuff going on in the manufacture of a different color than you might think. And there there are rumors of, as to why it took so long from, I think, uh, the proximity sensor to the, the camera. And for some reason, it was, it was delayed, but uh, I'm just glad it's out now. As for the thickness, it seems like a negligible amount to me, but if that's the kind of thing you really care about, then maybe you should get the black one. Yeah. Um, Somebody, I think, I, I think I read that the the extra thickness might be a a UV filter, so it doesn't turn yellow, which I would definitely appreciate, and that's certainly worth the uh, 0.2 millimeters to me. But and that was a pretty common problem one. in the white MacBooks. Yeah, it's um, I, I've definitely seen a lot of older Macs, older iBooks, and stuff that uh, have turned a slightly yellowish shade. So yeah. it's it's good that the iPhone won't. Uh, or hopefully wouldn't suffer the same fate because it looks it looks dirty, you know. Yeah. It looks it looks grubby, you know. And with something like an iPhone that's in your hands at all times or picking up, you know, God knows what with the lint and everything else in pockets of pants and all of the other all of the other pockets that people choose to put it in, without some kind of a full on case, that thing, as we've known for some time, especially with Mac products, the white white color devices pick up grunge like no other. Yeah, which makes it very very apparent. Yeah, so there've been uh, a lot of competitors coming out with the, uh, to the iPad lately. You know, you've got uh, your uh, HP touchpad, you've got your LG slates and your Samsung slates and uh, Jason, I think you had a chance recently to to play with the BlackBerry Playbook. What did you think about that? It was it was really interesting. It was it was I'm kind of torn on what I think about uh, multi-finger gestures right now, especially because the playbook has implemented it without multiple fingers per, for the predominant use. So the a, a little quick backstory is that if you have your iPad connected 
uh, I'm sorry, if you have Xcode downloaded, I believe any version suffices, even three, in the organizer window, which is the very first thing that ever opens up, uh, people think of it as the project management window, if you have your iPad plugged into your computer, there's a little button on the device page that says use in development. And I believe that does just a little bit of It doesn't install a certificate, but it unlocks something in the iPad that enables a couple of features. And as of 4.3, it enabled these uh, special gestures that you can use to basically never have to use the home button. Uh, I believe it's five-button pinch uh, collapsing your fingers together. Yeah, yeah, five-button pinch, correct. (laughs) Um, Five-finger pinch collapsing your fingers together will exit the app, will uh, go to the home screen. It's either three fingers or four fingers swipe up will raise the home, the the multitasking menu, and then a four finger swipe from the right to the left or to the left from the right will switch apps relative to the multitasking bar. So, for example, if you open up your multitasking bar and you have, in order from left to right, iPod, uh, phone, browser, mail, as you swipe, to the left, from right to the left, um, you will go from, what order did I say, from iPad, uh, from the iPod app, to the phone app, to the browser, to Safari, mobile Safari, and then to the mail app, and then obviously you can go in reverse to come all the way back. They're, they're interesting, but they're definite, they definitely provide a problem because there are games, for example, that rely on multiple taps. And if you if you have multiple fingers on the canvas and move in a specific direction, you're gonna lose your progress in the game and probably shout a, a string of expletives and some other profanity. So there, there's a big toss up on the functionality of this right now. Moving back to the playbook itself, it's pretty interesting because all of their gestures that were immediately obvious to me are all one finger. Uh, you can swipe from the bottom, from the chrome of the of the screen, and not even actually on the display itself. You can swipe from the bottom up to look at your active applications. It's it's basically the closest thing to a home screen because it has status indicators in the top right, the clock, the running applications. I believe there was a volume control in there. And then there was uh, – so the, the bottom up is kind of overall system functions. And from left to right, again, from the chrome of the device onto the display across – you start switching applications. You just swipe them from side to side. Uh, a lot of people draw parallels to the card mechanism that WebOS and the Palm Pre and the Palm Pixie used. And then the one that really got me was from the top of the device down. In applications that support it, like for example the browser, when you swipe from the top of the device down, you get tabs. Uh, the button to look at your favorites, to go into your history, the home, stop, refresh buttons, the address bar, and the search box. And then in applications that it doesn't, I completely forgot what it did. <laughs> I, I, I worked predominantly with three applications, the music player, the app world, the, the marketplace application, and the browser. And the browser was the only one that actually had in-app functions when you go from top to bottom. So it was just interesting that you have no buttons on the face. It was it was quite different. You have no buttons on the face whatsoever, and everything system-wise, or dare I say it, meta to the application is a, is a gesture that you draw on the device itself. 
like most people are saying, the power button is terrible. It's tiny, and I had to I had to find a finger that actually had a nail long enough to depress it to actually get it to wake up in the first place, and then to sleep it when I was done with it. And uh, it was it was an impressive device, and uh, it definitely is a product of this generation in the sense that they actually know how to make something that appeals to the way things the the way that we expect things to look right now. Very pretty, very interesting. Um, I only had a couple of minutes with it, so the only things that stood out were these gestures, the way that you manipulate it, and then the fact that the settings screen looks an awful lot like Red Hat's first-run installation screen. I, I, I don't really want to go too terribly into describing it. It's just funny to me because uh, Rim made a big deal about how POSIX-compliant the playbook is, and... I, I found a screen that looked like it was taken directly from a Linux environment <laughs> and then just rebranded to be the relevant options. So I guess the, really the question that like everyone's asking is, is it true competition to the iPad or is it just a diversion? <laughs> it, it's something really hard for me to answer because, again, it, this was this was a display unit and it's not in my home. I'm not using it as part of my workflow. I don't think I want to answer that question because it would be one-sided and I definitely don't have enough information to ask it. It's responsive. It looks very good. I, it's, it's a worthy product to, to use. That's the, that's the idea that I have. The only other things I go off of are the things that I've heard about with regard to no contacts, calendaring, and mail. I don't want to dwell on those. It was more than a usable product. It was pretty, it was shiny, it functioned well, and it didn't do anything I didn't expect except for that top-down gesture. Uh, just seemed to create a little bit of confusion in the use. But it, it's it's interesting, and if you're in the ecosystem, it's a, it's a welcome improvement. Does the hardware support multi-touch, or is that just something they haven't implemented there's the standard multi-touch gestures uh, it's definitely supported in the hardware because the browser reacted the exact same way you would page zooming oh. on mm-hmm. on pinch and uh, on pinch and push expand well that sounds that sounds interesting it, i'll definitely look to uh follow the continued development of the playbook uh last week we had talked about how Apple had been maintaining a location database on the iPhone. And uh, in this past week, Apple has since posted a reply, a, a Q&A sort of disputing various uh, accusations that um, they were explicitly tracking individuals. And Apple, the, the gist of it is basically Apple is using this location data to make a more accurate accurate um, map of cell towers and uh, Wi-Fi networks. Wi-Fi networks, exactly. Yes, thank you. And despite that, they, they did admit that they should not have been keeping the data indefinitely. So it looks like in the next few versions of iOS, uh, we'll start to see stopping of the, the backup location database from the iPhone. So it will no longer be transferred to your computer and stored on your computer it will remain exclusively on the iPhone. They'll also work to uh, encrypt the the location database on the iPhone. I think that's not the next release, but the one after that is, I think, what they said. And they were going to be also looking to reduce the actual amount of data in the database, restricting it to seven days. 
So hopefully that will go some way to assuage people's fears that Apple has maintained a, a tracking database on them and that uh, their iPhone has a record of everywhere they go. I still think that, you know, wh- what I said last week, given the, the the fact that it's very easy to encrypt your your location database uh, backup on, on your computer and how it's it's very easy to just set a passcode on your iPhone, that this is mainly a non-issue. Obviously... Now that we know about it, we can take measures to avoid the data falling into the wrong hands. But uh, I think I think Apple's response to this is is good in that they they recognize that this is a problem and they're working to solve it. I feel like it's good that they're they're not doing this to track us and that they're not they have all the best intentions, I guess, at least compared to what people just kind of assumed when they first heard about this. But I do still feel like if it saves information based on where you've gone, and their explanation is that it, it only downloads the section of this crowdsourced location database that is relevant to where you've been. And that may be so, that you know, I'm not doubting them or anything about that, but I do feel like it only downloads information specific to where you've been, and so through that you can find out roughly where you've been, because... That's the locations where it's saved, where it's downloaded data for, fetch that for you. So if somebody were to get at your, your locations file, and you can predict, you can, as, as, as was said, you can protect against that reasonably well. But if somebody was to get a hold of your, your database file, it's not like they're not going to know where you've been, even if that's not Apple's intention. Yeah, that's definitely true. So hopefully we'll we'll see uh, more resolution in the future as as iOS updates come out and uh, hopefully they'll make this a a non-issue. I thought it was really nice that all of these details details started coming out uh, as they are because I remember when all of the uh, when all of the new smartphones basically as of the release of the iPhone and forward when all of they started when all of them started coming out I started seeing this term AGPS and a lot of people have been making a very big deal about this because it's very relevant in this case. Uh, AGPS stands for assisted GPS uh, and without going into detail about all of this non- about all of the specifics of this uh, AGPS was invented so that you didn't have to wait about 15 minutes to actually get a GPS signal to to figure out to get enough GPS signals three of them specifically in order to figure out where you are because satellites orbit in a specific manner if you have any communication with a device that can figure out exactly where they are you can use their information to begin the process of triangulation and it takes seconds rather than minutes i i talked about last week that i was looking at the map and everything that it stored and I saw the trip that I took to Arizona last year, a large concentration in my area, and a couple of the other routes that take me north and south of where I live. But what I didn't do, oddly enough, is I didn't actually zoom in as much as possible and really get down to the granular data. And when you see that, you see exactly what's going on. You see just the difference that a, a lack of granularity in the stored data actually brings out. The first thing that was kind of interesting was to see just how gridded the data works and I again I think that's because of a lack of precision you get in the area that you are frequently you get this very significant grid of everything that's actually in your area by which I mean uh, Wi-Fi points that have actually been registered to Skyhook or the particular database that Apple is using for this and presumably also the cell towers in the area which I can only assume are the 
very more significantly larger dots in uh, in the areas that I've been to. Actually, that uh, that grid pattern is um, the program generates that. Uh, when you actually look at the web page, it says that uh, it reduces the granularity of the data intentionally. But apparently, when you actually look at the actual locations file, it's all there. Oh, that's not fair. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of mean. I, I want to see I want to see the data completely represented yeah. in the exact values that it has. Um, well, you just uh, that just completely blows my point out of the yeah. water then because <laughs> I was going to say it definitely you definitely see the concentration in the places that I am significantly those being home and work, um, but at least as far as the way that it's represented in the iPhone tracker app, I can't imagine a scenario where this information could actually be used in an incriminating manner. Uh, it's it's too broad. But if it's if it's if I'm not looking at the actual data, then I obviously won't make that claim because. Uh, if if I'm not looking at what it actually says, then I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna base a claim on it. Right. Well, there is the fact that in the Apple press release, it said that uh, sometimes locations are included that are up to 100 miles away. And in fact, you and I both saw this. That yeah. you know, it said that I went to Vermont sometime in November, and I very clearly did not go to Vermont. <laughs> so it's it's one of those things where even though it may be able to have like accurate GPS coordinates for some places that you have been. It does not necessarily, if it's in your location database, doesn't necessarily mean that you've been there. So it's it's very difficult to conclusively prove anything other than just very general sort of, you know, you were in this area a lot kind of stuff. Yeah. It's 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 more aggregate in the amount of times that you go to a specific, admittedly very wide region, uh, as much as it is pinpointing you where you are on the night of June fourteenth at nine oh eight p.m. I think they I think. It, the term plausible deniability comes to mind there in the sense that it's imperfect enough that it can't be used in an incriminating manner. Yeah, definitely not in a court of law, although, you know, it may be used by, like, a jealous spouse or something. I could see that <laughs> happening. A Tiger Woods wife? Oh, no. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. Yeah. There, Although, on the flip side, there has been the news, that there is news that came out on the heels of this that law enforcement is aware and supposedly they've been using it. Although we, we can only speculate endlessly, but perhaps the, the point to use there is that they use it in a, in a corroborating manner, but they don't use it as a smoking gun. They can put you definitively in some kind of a region, and oh, by the way, they also have this camera footage of you going by, and oh, by the way, they have you using this ATM. But they don't say, your phone says you were right here, so you're, you know... We got you. Right. Yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, it's it's one of those things where now that we're aware of it, it it's not a bus- as big of an issue. I think the main issue was that the iPhones were doing it and Apple wasn't telling anyone. I think that was the primary thing. So, uh, so Jason, um, have you ever been on, like, the uh, the iOS app store and, like, there's always, like, you know, there's, like, Angry Birds free and Angry Birds paid and there's there's tons of, like, apps where there's a free version and a paid version and the free version has ads and the, and the paid version doesn't and there's more functionality in the paid version uh, there was actually this, this article that was written recently by Marco Arment the author of Instapaper where he actually pulled his free version from the store and he apparently he saw his, his sales go up of the paid version, didn't know if he had any thoughts on that this is this is one of those things. It's kind of well, one part of it is that when when this when I read this article initially, I kind of had a, a partially. It feels kind of an inflammatory idea to me, but this this these are basically all the thoughts that I had. 
the the initial response is that it's not a surprise that when you only have one version of your app that it's going to be the only thing people are going to go to and they're going to pick it up. So because if you're if you're competing with yourself, then either you're going to get just as much across as many products as you have. Otherwise, they're going to concentrate all of them into one single app. Yes, some people are going to be turned off by having to pay and having no other recourse. Uh, and that's a discussion for the app store at large in general. Personally speaking, if there's an app that I perhaps don't understand, have been recommended to in some specific use case or something like that, I like having light distributions to actually see at least the gist of the primary feature of uh, the service or the utility, whatever the intention of the application is. It's it's a convenience in the in the direct in the fact that demo versions of products are dying off by the dozens nowadays uh it's 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 a very mixed response in the sense that these things are beneficial to have but they're also at large detriment i think it's also um a bit of a failing in the app store that there have to be two versions the fact that you can't say for example give away a free version and very easily convert it to a paid version i mean i realize there's in-app purchases but there's there's certain issues at play that uh, Marco actually gets into into in great depth on his build and analyze podcast but it's it's not a situation where there's a clear solution to the problem i mean he obviously started instapaper before they had in app purchases and created uh the uh the free version before again before that happened yeah it just seems like this is more reactionary like this is the, the the free versus paid split is come as a result of some app store limitations. Mm-hmm. And the part that I was talking about being inflammatory is that people like free stuff, and that's not a problem. But when you take it in context of a lot of the other, the current woes that app stores are learning going through this stuff, notably, you go on, uh, you go on. E- the iTunes App Store, and you have angry pigs and angry chickens and angry, you know, fill in fill in your current uh, your current favorite right there. And there are all of these identical games that had to be re-implemented because it's not like anybody stole the source. But it's a simple concept in the in the sense that people can take this idea, spin it off on their own, replacing replacing the art, adding a super speed feature, and selling it for ninety nine cents on the store. And that there's all of these extra apps that are really riding on the big name coattails. I hate to say it, I don't, I don't like shunning developers, but there are a lot of coattail apps. And then there's the stuff that I don't, I don't want to comment on it because I didn't ever buy it. But if you search for Angry Birds and you see Angry Birds Code Generator, all of these other things, all of these apps that you see that uh, accompany a lot of big name titles, I don't understand them. I don't know what they are, and I have I have been very adamant about shying away from them and ensuring that, especially on my phone, I don't actually I don't get close to accidentally hitting them instead, instead of the app I'm actually looking for. And the the re the most inflammatory part is the news that you hear every once in a while about the Android marketplace about how people take the APK of an Android application, uh, drop some kind of junk into the application and re-syndicate and put it back in the marketplace using some uh, using pretty much all the same details only the company name or the individual developer name being any different not to even speak of the danger and the security but they do it 
so that they can entrap the customer. They do it at a significantly reduced cost or free because the money's going to come from another location, usually in a very shady manner. So it's not it's not a surprise to me that a lack of a free version is actually benefiting the developer because it falls in the same line as general enforcement of this extra stuff that just makes a mess of things. Yeah, on Android, you know, it's uh, it's much more difficult to make money directly by selling apps. I've I've anecdotally heard things where people will sell you know 300 copies of uh, an iOS you know game or or app or something like that, and in the same time period they'll sell maybe three versions of the Android thing. So it seems like a lot of Android developers are actually turning toward ads in their on in their apps to make money. Angry Birds does this. They have uh, ads in the Android version. You can't even you can't even pay for an a paid version of Angry Birds on the Android because it just doesn't exist. Um, presumably because Rovio believes that there's not enough demand for them for to be worth their while to make one. <laughs> and I actually saw this really interesting video, and I think I think you saw it as well, Nathan, where uh, there's a new way to advertise to Android users where if they have your app on their device, you can actually send a, a push message to the notifications bar. I don't know if you had any thoughts on this. It's been widely received as a bad idea, and no user wants to have their push notifications area, which gets filled up with useful things like social networking messages and updates available, you know, that sort of useful message that you actually probably want to look at, and emails and anything like that. But here, there's this company, AirPush, that offers to send ads through push notifications to phones that have your app installed on them on Android. And so they claim that the benefits of this for advertisers are that ads show up where people are more likely to see them, and you have to kind of look at them to clear them from your notifications bar. So even if it's just ignore it, you still have to look at it. And the other benefit that they've claimed for developers is that normally for an app to get any ad revenue, the users have to use the app. But this way, if it's just installed, you don't have to use it at all. If the app is installed, stuff gets into your push notification area. So you can buy an app that you don't like and or never use, and even if you haven't opened it for ages, it'll still be pumping ads into your notifications bar unless you uninstall the app completely. And this idea, of course, has been widely received as not something that people want to have happen. I think this just underscores like the difference between the Android and the iOS platforms, mm-hmm. where if a developer tried to pull this on iOS, Apple first would completely reject the app, and if for some reason they, it managed to sneak through, the app would be pulled instantly whenever there was a complaint about it. Interestingly enough, Google did pull the application, um, presumably as a result of reports, but after it, their, their words, upon further review, they sent a note to the developer saying that you're welcome to relist it with that feature intact. The, there was reaction there. They did pull the application, but then for, I, I don't know if a specific reason were, was given, but they said that the developer is welcome to repost it. Interesting to learn that pulling is a permanent thing and Google doesn't have a, a undo button for it. 
Well, I mean, it's so easy to post on the Android App Store that even if Google, you know, didn't say to the developer, you know, you're free to repost it, he very easily could. You could just register a different name and, and just publish it under that. So, something I didn't think about before um, is the source application for this notification identified. So, so for example, if uh, if the person, if the developer of a specific app that has this AirPush SDK in it doesn't use it immediately and then starts an ad campaign, you know, two months after somebody installs the application, do you actually know what application generated that notification in your notification bar? That's a good question. On, I'm not sure. I know on iOS it'll say, you know, from from the Facebook app or yeah, or it has say the Facebook or something like that, but I haven't used android enough to see it and the little screen cap they've got on the uh the airpush website it's it doesn't say it's just yeah. a bar a little the... item in the notifications list but it's clearly a an edited um screen cap so i don't yeah. know how it really because the icon was custom the title was basically the right. advertisement title and the yeah. body of text was the description of the advertisement but I didn't really see anything. And tapping on it would, of course, take you to the source that the ad is trying to get you to. Right. Uh, I don't. I don't remember seeing anything definitive, so that you actually know which app it came from. Yeah, I'm not sure. And even even still, it's just a really low thing for apps to to do to users. I've got a I've got a personal thing against having ads on on iOS, especially on devices as small as as my iPhone. Whenever possible, I try to minimize the the number of apps that have ads. So, you know, if there's a a five dollar upgrade to a version that doesn't have ads and it's an app that I really like, then I'll do it. A classic example is the um, the plain text editor uh, from Hogbay Software. It just syncs with uh, Dropbox, and it's a free uh, download from the App Store. And to get rid of the ads, it's just a five dollar in-app purchase. And it's just That's clever. Yeah, an in-app purchase. That's fine. Good way to do it. Yeah, I think Weatherbug has the same thing, where they they get rid of the ads in an in-app purchase. And you know, if if your app doesn't have a way for me to get rid of the ads, it's quite likely that uh, I'm not going to buy it. <laughs> so it should never be ads in a paid app either. That's not yeah. That's not how it should work. Yeah, I th- Angry Birds sort of irked me a little bit when they uh, they added ads for other Angry Birds products in the um, the level failed screen, or it was one of those screens, and to be honest, that drastically cut down the amount of time that I've spent playing the app just because I don't I don't like being shown ads. Um, yep. especially, especially on something you've paid for. Exactly, exactly. There's a lot of mixed reviews of the, the Mighty Eagle button that they implemented because it's it's in a reasonably prevalent spot. I mean, what isn't a prevalent spot, especially on something, especially on the iPhone to a lesser extent, the iPad. But that button that's sitting right next there to, I believe it's the pause button, you tap it. And thankfully, it doesn't take place automatically. But there's a couple times that I've I've inadvertently tapped the Mighty Eagle button and had to cancel the purchase request. Yeah, I really would like it if apps presented some sort of dialogue that says, do you want to purchase such and such? And if you hit... Yes, then it would bring up that second dialogue from the actual app store that said, "Okay, do you really want to purchase this?" Because the 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 flow the flow is a purchase uh, is a purchase request confirmation, and then 
I believe that even if you do it within the five-minute timeout or whatever, you always have to put in your password for an in-app purchase. There's a music simulation game out called ReRave right now, and they started you off with, I think there's like two or three songs built into the game. They had a free three-song pack, and then they're up to like six-song packs right now, something like that. Uh, and when you go to their market, they let you, they give you a list of the songs, and if you have your pack, uh, if you pick a pack to purchase, oh wow, say that three times fast, <laughs> you, you find songs you're interested in, you tap on the song pack, and the first thing it does is in a classic notification style, it says, would you like to buy this song pack for two bucks, or you know, for however many, for however much, uh, for however much. Uh, and it has a cancel and a buy button. You, If you tap on the buy button, then it brings up the same password, uh, uh, iTunes account password prompt, and you fill that in, and then it doesn't leave the app. Thankfully, you just uh, get a in-app download handler, but the, it does it does ask you. Uh, my irk my in the case of the Mighty Eagle in Angry Birds is the fact that it's close to a very prominent button, that being the pause button, because you get frustrated a level and restart. It's not like it says buy, you know, buy this thing. It's like, yeah. oh, what's this do? Or I'll use my power up, whatever. That, that yeah. sort of thing. It's not... It's oh, not you have to pay to do that. Dun, dun, dun. Yep. <laughs> There's an app called Thermo, which is basically just a thermometer. And it's a free app, but it has ads on the bottom. But what I don't like is that there's a little X by the ads, you know, seemingly to close to close the display of the ad. But when you hit that X, it initiates an in-app purchase. So it's like, oh, do you want to pay? I, I don't remember how much to get rid of the ads. And I thought that was a little low because, you know, people have been trained to hit the X and the X makes something go away. But in this case, you hit the X and you, it basically wants you to buy something. So. It would be nice if, you know, instead of uh, just you expect pop- it, You expect it to hide the app temporarily instead yeah. of permanently disable the existence of the apps. Or like, you know, even if it popped up something that said, you know, please help support Thermo if you want to get rid of the ads. All you have to do is just buy this thing and we won't show you ads anymore. Do you want to buy it? And then you hit yes and then it would, and then it would pop up the, the actual app store. Do you want to buy or cancel? But, you know, when you hit it and it just says buy, cancel, and you're like, what did I just do? I just want to hide the ad. You know, it, it, it's a little annoying. Uh, I think that developers are a little too comfortable with embedding links to purchase stuff in their apps. I'm wondering if some kind of an Apple standardized uh, in-app purchase icon would be useful. So, so a button that always means in-app purchase or a little icon next to a button or even some kind of a distinctive font if they want to do that, where you can look at you can look at a button and say, Oh, buy something, or you can look at a even an X and say, Oh, but that you know, that's an X, but it's per you know, it's a it goes to an in app purchase or That's actually that a great button, idea. I that like button that. Idea. Birds. <laughs> yeah. All we need is a picture of a credit card. Everybody knows what that thing is. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It doesn't I, even I, have I, to be nearly that obtrusive, just something that people are trained to know. That little asterisk type symbol is yeah, just like the it. just like the eye icon informational the uh, things that people usually use for information panes the cog wheel for mm-hmm. preferences something that's a very signet that has very significant prevalence in the particular market uh isn't isn't a bad idea i don't know that that's something they would necessarily want to enforce 
Or I, I think that would be more of a community thing than it would be something that Apple should have to have any specific claim on because uh, you can write uh, a Mac application with the the close minimize buttons at the top right, but nobody would like it. <laughs> so maybe it'll become just kind of a stylistic thing like that. Yeah, yeah I don't know. It's uh, I I like the idea. I wish I wish it existed, but. Um... You know, it's it again. It is a little difficult not knowing when you're going to buy something. Mm-hmm. So I want to just get out my soapbox for a second to talk about the idea of a continuous client. The phrase "continuous client" was, I believe, initially coined by uh, someone on the Engadget team. I'm not sure exactly who, but it's it's a very interesting concept because nowadays, you know, we don't just have one computer. We have maybe two or three computers that we switch between. We have iPads, we have, you know, iPhones, iPod Touches, and and even like Apple TVs, where we have the capability of interacting with, you know, apps and, and, and other content in multiple different ways. But the the problem is it's not very easy to say resume where you left off um, in most situations. Now there there have been some strides, especially with uh, I believe like iTunes, where you can um, say you can start listening to a podcast on your iPhone. You sync it to your computer, and then you can continue listening on your computer from where you left off. But it does require that manual step. And the idea of the continuous client is that you wouldn't have to make that connection. That somehow through some magic means, your exact position on the podcast would be automatically known by your computer. And I think we definitely have the technology to accomplish this nowadays. So I'm just sort of wondering why more companies aren't aren't providing this feature. Uh, another good example that I have is is Twitter. Like I read Twitter on my on my MacBook, I read Twitter on my iPhone, and what I really don't like is that every time I I start up the Twitter app on a different client that I'm nowhere near where I was, where I had left off on the other clients, and I would really like a way that for Twitter to provide like a a uniform way to resume exactly where I left off, so it would know exactly where I was in the in the tweet timeline, and just anytime I opened up an application and it provided an update. And, and look for an update. Twitter, in addition to providing me with additional tweets, would also provide me with my last known location. I know YouTube has made some progress in that direction because they, if uh, if you've got a set of videos you want to watch, maybe from your subscription uh, feed or or whatever, you you click a little plus button and the video goes into your queue, which is a little bar at the bottom of your screen, which is basically a playlist of videos that you work your way through. You know, you they auto continue once you finish one, it moves to the next. And so I like that. That's a convenient feature. I use that when I can. And one of my major gripes with that up until recently was that as soon as you close the browser window, that queue completely empties. And then as soon as you... And then they made some progress. It saved it in a cookie for a couple hours was my experience. But I didn't like that even because it was unpredictable. Plus and, you, you couldn't switch devices. Right. So now they've... they've uh, They've pushed this a little farther, and I think I like it this way considerably better. It's a lot. It's a nice surprise. It saves it between computers, in my my in my experience. I'm, yeah, it does. Um, and it, it 
it syncs this queue. As, as long as you're on the same account, it syncs this queue between devices and between browsers and between sessions, which is a lot easier because it, it remembers your position in the queue. It remembers... Uh, I, it doesn't remember where you are in a video, so that would be the next logical step to take, and I would like to see that implemented. But this is one of the few places where I've seen this really... They've tried this, and it's worked well. And so I think that's it's a good example of how you can use this concept, and it'll be it'll just be a convenience. Yeah, there's a lot of accompanying examples to this, um, especially with things that are built as a serv- as a service, with something that you actually have to phone home to. Notably, generally speaking, we watch Netflix down here in our living room. Uh, we use the Netflix app on the 360 plugged into our TV, of course, because that's our best uh, entertainment system here. Occasionally, we'll if we're just kind of doing something around or if one of us is watching a movie, we'll be upstairs on the iMac and we'll be watching Netflix through their website because obviously it's on our computer. It's very, very nice of Netflix that if we're watching something upstairs or if she's watching something and I'm just kind of doing doing chores around the place and the uh, the the movie the episode whatever is kind of interesting to me that she can pause it uh, exit it really and then we can come downstairs fire up Netflix and one the recently watched list puts it right there front and center as the very first thing we see when the app opens up and then we hit play on it and it picks up right where she was so we have the the default is if for one person that they can pick up right where they left off if they're watching from a different location, but also given the choice that we can restart the thing over if I was interested enough that I want to see the full thing. Google Chrome has the entire syncing aspect, even to the extent of uh, form data and passwords and whatnot. The, the infrastructure for this is going up, and the ability to actually have some kind of a save state is going up. The hard part is that the save state is not necessarily just an indicator. Echophone, for example, is a Twitter client that might solve your needs, Kyle. I don't know if you have any specific feature set that you like, but I have Echophone on my iPhone, on my iPad, on my computer. So generally speaking, when I'm at my when I'm actually working on my computer, if I have Echophone up in the background and I'm just kind of browsing, great. Uh, but if I close that and then I'm, I go somewhere and I'm talking to somebody, oh, hey, somebody mentioned that, bring it up on my phone. And as long as I have sync enabled, I only get the last however many tweets that happened uh, since I looked at it on my computer. And admittedly, you have to close it on your computer because if your computer is active, it'll just slurp up all of the new updates and prevent your other devices from getting it. But the infrastructure is getting there and... Be you know, uh, despite the setbacks we've had, uh, people the the recent easy two downtime and people that are kind of averse to the cloud in general, a significant server side facility is necessary for all of this to take place, and we're getting there. That's the that's the bigger promise of the cloud than much of what other people expect out of it. Yeah, that's definitely true. I was actually going to bring up Netflix as an example of a company that does it right. And I think, you know, if you look at services that do do it right, say, for example, Google Docs or Gmail or pretty much any other Google services where everything is server side and you're only interacting with it uh, through like a web browser or something so that there's nothing actually stored on the client. I think in order to accomplish this sort of continuous client ideal, 
that you you basically do have to transfer everything server side because that's the only way to ensure that you know information on device A gets successfully propagated to device B and for for things that don't support it or that are simply too large Dropbox provides a a fairly reasonable facsimile I mean it doesn't open up your word documents exactly where you left typing you know but uh, it it does provide the ability to immediately synchronize changes between multiple devices but if that ability was built into the document to to the office software with some kind of a pointer uh pointer state saved into the document itself then when it goes to the other side then you can open it up and go right there so you're right it does have a it does have a very good conduit for enabling that across systems right yeah i think you know we talked a lot about dropbox on our last show but i i don't know i'm just getting more excited about it i really think it's sort of like the like file system of the future where you know you're not going to be storing stuff you know on your computer or on your iPad. It's just going to be stored in your Dropbox and then you'll just be able to access it from multiple devices. And you really see the first step of that with the Apple TV, the current generation Apple TV right now. Oh, definitely, yeah. And that's that you 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 sit there and you start to think about it and there's two very big examples where some very interesting things can and likely will happen in the next Probably not. Probably less than two years. The first one that comes to mind is Chrome OS. It's supposed to be an entirely web-geared, uh, cloud-backed laptop, all bound to your Google account. And so they're they're big. Uh, when they had their destruction lab, little uh, cute little idea is that the the netbook can go away entirely, and you grab another one, sign in as yourself, and you were right where you left. That's the that's the quintessential example of this. The other part that kind of starts to make you wonder is what Apple's going to do. And what I mean is the fact that one of Lion's touted features is application state. You don't have to close everything down to restart your computer. You do. But what happens is when you start it back up, you don't have to manually restore the state of everything you were doing. When the application comes back up, if written to support it, then exactly what you were doing, exactly where you were, everything you were doing is right there. What if, if the application and something on the file system is going to store this information, how hard is it going to be to put it on a server instead of your computer? Open the same exact application, boom. Exactly what you were doing in a different location. And until that gets implemented, we've got Dropbox and Simlinks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I recently had a bit of a thing with Dropbox and Simlinks. Um, apparently... You have to be careful about which way your symlinks go. Yes. So if you have a folder in Dropbox, or I, I should rephrase that, if you link to a folder that's outside Dropbox from within Dropbox, so you're creating a link from within Dropbox to something that's outside of Dropbox. <laughs> that, w- that was distinct. Um, yeah, it doesn't... So the, the, the physical folder is elsewhere on your file system, and you're dropping just a symlink of it into Dropbox. Exactly. Okay. For some reason, that does not work. Like, it, Dropbox will see the f- the files that are in there, but whenever you make a change, it doesn't recognize that anything has been changed. So you actually have to make the physical folder within the Dropbox folder itself, and then link to it. So I actually it was I just the other day I was setting up. Um, I have an old MacBook, and I was hooking it up to an external monitor that I have, and I wanted to synchronize the desktop between my my MacBook Pro and my old MacBook, and I was finding that. I would actually have to delete the desktop folder 
um, from within my home folder, and then symlink that to the Dropbox folder. Now, fortunately, macOS 10, once I logged out, logged back in, macOS 10 deals with this just fine. And because the actual desktop folder is within the Dropbox folder, Dropbox, again, deals with it just fine. But it's a little, you know, you don't know exactly how much OS 10 relies on that desktop folder being there. So it makes you a little nervous when you sort of nuke it away. The fact that it has to read (laughs) it in to actually provide your login environment. Yeah. But, you know, I I really hope that Dropbox um, provides the ability to synchronize multiple folders in the future, just because I think this, the single folder syncing and using a bunch of sim links, it gets a little tricky once you have a non-trivial amount of uh, different areas that you need to synchronize. I wonder why it only works in that one direction though, because you can, you, you, you said that it works, but it will never incrementally update after the fact, shy of basically recreating the link. Right. Um, it, it may have to do with how it handles the Finder code injection and trying to restrict it to just the Dropbox folder to improve performance would be my guess. Yeah, my guess is that uh, it probably operates on a similar way that uh, like Spotlight and Time Machine work and that uh, you can actually get from the operating system a list of any changes in a specific folder. Uh-huh. And it's possible that the operating system does not consider the symlinked folder like, quote-unquote, within that folder. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. The file system events happen in the physical folder and not in the symlink, so Dropbox never receives those events and does anything with it. Right. Yeah, that, that uh, there's an application called FS Eventer, File System Eventer, that will visualize those events that are being uh, written to the disk in real time. Very, very impressive utility, very fun. I stumbled on this last week. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, that the symlink... The symlink just being there isn't the one that generates the file system change event, so it's just stuck. And there's really nothing efficient that Dropbox can do to change that. Ooh, what a shame. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it it's probably an operating system support thing. I mean, maybe it's different on Windows and or uh, no. Linux. Same deal. You get your Dropbox folder, and that's... No, I mean, but like, I, I know NTFS and um, EXE3 or whatever the... Linux people are using nowadays do support the idea of a symlink, but whether or not, uh, like the file system event kind of thing, uh, oh, supports access through the symlink. Right. But, but I don't, it, it worked out fine. Uh, I was able to just, you know, nuke the desktop folder, link it over Mac OS 10 and Dropbox are now happy. So I'm good to go with that. Hopefully you used yeah. Mac drop mini for it to do it correctly. Ah, uh, I did not. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> well, I've got such, such a web of symlinks and aliases, and aliases are useful because it, it, gives you, it doesn't copy, uh, it doesn't update things that are in the linked folder, so that's good under certain circumstances. Like, I've got, I've got an alias to my downloads folder on my desktop, which is good because I use my downloads folder as kind of a temporary big stuff uh, <laughs> box. And I don't want that to go on Dropbox because it would probably blow past my storage limit and take forever. So I'm glad that I can keep a an alias to that on my desktop and have Dropbox sync my desktop, which I do, and not worry about stuff in the downloads folder get getting sent to Dropbox. But I'm just I I fear having to do any work changing any of this stuff because it's so so confusing that I would probably just have to start all over. I've got no idea how any of this stuff is set up anymore. <laughs> I'm just gradually adding symlinks. 
Yeah, I. It's the same with me. Um, first it was my documents folder, and then it was like I have a projects folder and an archive folder, and it's just eventually, especially once I upgraded to the paid account, I was just like, ooh, you know, there's all this stuff that I may <laughs> want to sync, so I just added a bunch of sim links, and now it's kind of intimidating, you know, making sure I don't change the wrong thing. And yeah, I mean, the good thing about Dropbox is that you know, if you mess up, they've got that undo functionality, so mm-hmm. you know, you you really can't delete all your data. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, you do have to be careful. And I, sh- I should point out that um, when I was making those changes, you know, w- when I was deleting the desktop folder and, you know, all that stuff with the Dropbox and the Simlink, I was actually, I made sure that I had quit Dropbox because mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be propagating those changes to the service and to my other computers as I was in the process of making the changes. You can even, there's a pause syncing option in the Dropbox menu app, well, so you I, don't even have to quit. Well, I saw that, but then I didn't know if, you know, if it would still listen for file system events. I think it just stops until, just you, stops. until you resume. Okay. I'm not sure. I, I haven't tested that Well, one. I just figured it was safer to, to quit. Yeah. <laughs> that way you know it's not running. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So I guess uh, it's about time for our app of the week. So Nathan, you want to take it away? Sure. We have selected Coda, which is from Panic Software. It's a a one-window web development application is what they call it. And the idea is that you've got... you. It's organized by sites, so you, you define a site and give it information like um, SSH logins and FTP accounts and, and a local route, remote route, that sort of... All the stuff you need to communicate properly with your computer and the server... The, the web server. So the the beauty of Coda is that it's everything right together. So you can, it's got a good text editor, which has lots of, lots of, lots of language support for pretty much any language that you might even want to use in web development. And it's got code completion, syntax coloring, validation, uh, live hints, all that kind of useful, useful stuff. It's a good text editor. And then it's got a graphic CSS editor, which is, it's, it's okay. I still find it faster to do it by hand, but it's a nice, it's the best graphic editor I've seen for CSS. And then it's got separate tabs, which I don't use as much for uh, SVN and SSH and that sort of stuff. And I, I can't say I use that extensively, so I'll maybe let Jason tell you more about that. But my second favorite part is that it's got a little sidebar and that sidebar shows your your files and well it shows the the folder structure by default for the local version of your site which you define when you define the site itself but it shows the local folder structure and files and you basically click on one of those files to open it in a tab it's got lots of cool split screen configurability so you can it's a very powerful organizer in that way but then the other nice thing about that little file browser on the side is that it's got two tabs local and remote and so when you click to remote, it connects to the FTP server you've defined, and it basically checks out the files and keeps everything in sync. Well, it tells you what needs to be synchronized. So whenever you modify a file locally, it adds a little arrow next to its name, and you can click the arrow to send it to the local to the remote sorry server. And it's a very quick FTP transfer. And then there's a button to publish all updated content or something to that effect where anything that you've updated locally 
will be published to your remote server. And I've, I've found that works very well. It's a much faster uh, FTP client than Dreamweaver is. Yeah, the, the the scope of Coda is pretty. It's interesting. It's very, it's a very large application, but it uses it all very effectively. Uh, the visual the visual CSS editor is probably the most unique thing that I've absolutely ever seen in any application before. Exactly as Nathan said, you don't have to use it. You can put it in edit mode instead of CSS mode and write everything manually. But if you go back to the visual mode, you actually see all of your changes propagated. The reason why it's so creative is that it has the ability to visually represent most of the items definable by CSS. On the basic side of that example, if you create a rule and that is in this divider, in a divider with the ID of content, I want all of the font, I want all of the characters to be in Times New... No, 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 I'm not going to say that. I want all of the characters to be in Georgia face. I want it to be 14 point and colored blue. And what it does is that in that label for the divider, for the content ID'd divider, it actually prints the the label. It, the terminology is seeming kind of hard. You define you define your your selectors, and it labels that selector to the extent that it actually can visually. So you create div pound content, and that label will actually be in Georgia. 14-point font and colored red. And again, this is in the visual editor. You're not looking at your web page. You're not looking at the raw CSS. It's this little interface that they've created to actually show this. So these rules that you apply to the extent that they can show you, if you write align content, it will take the label and right align the text inside of it against the content bar instead of to the left, the file browser aspect of the uh, of the editor. It will background color things with a different background color. It's amazing for drilling into the rules at a glance. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. It's absolutely fantastic. They ship with HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and PHP books, uh, which are basically large reference from like the W3 Consortium. And the PHP book is generated straight from the PHP.net documentation. And they have a framework for adding your own books. And their forums are a... They, they have a wealth of Python and Ruby and Rails and uh, uh, Kohana, CodeIgniter, CakePHP. Um, there are a ton of third-party content in there that's usually as simple as just plugging a URL into it uh, because it's well-defined to actually bring this information out. The other, it has built-in SVN capabilities as of the current version. There's, I, I think I saw some talk about if they're going to add some other languages in uh, to future iterations. I think it's at version 1.6 right now. Somehow, yeah, 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 I knew it was a little bit behind. I kind of stopped paying attention. It's just updating whenever it asks me to. Um, exactly as Nathan said, you can use it as an individual file editor, or you can group it logically into any kind of a site content where it it has a built-in browser, the whole point is to not leave the window. And so in order to do that, they have the the meta management, the site management, they have the file editor, they have a terminal that you can use locally or remotely to perhaps bring up the command line, uh, you know, MySQL management, or uh, just things, just one-off tasks that you can do pretty quickly. They have a web browser built into it, and then the books feature that I was talking about for more extended reference outside of the code layout itself. 
very big, but very, very functional. And like always, Panic put together something something amazing. The thing I would forget to add about the uh, is the previewing. As you mentioned, it's it's got a web browser built in, but the web browser is WebKit. So it's mm-hmm. what you see in the app is the same as what you'll see in Chrome and Safari. So you know that you have the preview that they give you that live updates as you type things. If you've got a split screen up, you can keep the preview, the bottom half of your screen, and the code at the top half. So whether you're editing a CSS or that sort of thing, as soon as you update it, it your your changes propagate to the the graphic preview at the mm. bottom. Yeah, and absolutely. Then you can, yeah, and then you can just click on the preview button. It's it's a little pop up menu, and if you click the arrow, you select the browser to open it with, and if you just click the button, it opens with the last used browser. So you can really easily try it out in the the browser itself, or otherwise see a very accurate representation that live updates yeah, just you can, in the window. You can preview it in app using the same WebKit image you would otherwise, and then you right. can very easily from within the application shell out to an ex- external browser, say Firefox, and preview it in the Gecko engine instead, which is exactly what web designers have to do to mitigate differences across rendering engines. How would you say it compares to something like Dreamweaver? I used Dreamweaver a lot before I found Coda, and Dreamweaver is just an ugly, and well, I say ugly, I mean ugly in terms of having a lot of feature creep, and so Dreamweaver, I guess maybe feature creep only if you're someone like me, but Dreamweaver, I think, originally started out as, from Macromedia, a, a graphic web builder. And then Adobe bought it, and I, I, you know, I'm not completely clear on the history. I might do this out of order, but bear with me. Um, and then Adobe added a lot of code uh, features, so you can you can write code with it, and you can. It, it has a few, you know, code completion, code suggestion, coloring, that sort of thing. So, and that's all I used it for, really, as a, a code editor. But the stuff, it, it's got some stuff that doesn't really seem logical to me based on the current state of other applications like the uh and i guess mac applications especially the ftp client is really slow and when you tell it to synchronize your site i've had very patchy luck with that and it doesn't work like you would expect any mac application to in that it shows kind of a well it doesn't it's it's hard to get a sense of what it's really doing it gives you a little preview window which has arrows, so that's good. But generally, it just goes, you, you tell it to update this one page, and then it updates eight other pages, too. And generally, it does so for good reason, like if it thinks they're dependent or, or something like that. But I've just found it unpredictable, and, and it's a slow FTP client. So you're saying that uh, Coda is much more, it's much more Mac um, user experience? and Yes, it definitely is. And it's the the thing that really attracted me to Coda in the first place is that it is designed for people who make web pages with code, not with drag and drop. And so that's you know that's what I do. So I don't really need all of the stuff associated with the what you see is what you get editors. And so I think that's part of the reason Dreamweaver didn't work as well for me. The split that I've kind of taken, I, I openly admit, I, I could be off the mark. Nathan, feel free to stop me. Um, the split that I've kind of learned is that Dreamweaver is very geared to static sites, and again, exactly as you just said, visual representation, what you see is what you get, 
and the, the, the simplistic aspect of it where Coda drills down into a lot more of the dynamic, letting you do it with whatever programming language you're going to do uh, with whatever server-side scripting language you're going to use, it helps you along with that in its reference capabilities and and autocomplete capabilities a lot more, where Dreamweaver is very geared to being more static, raw HTML, and complementary CSS and JavaScript. Well, they've made, Dreamweaver's made progress. I think it's a decent code editor, but really how I felt using Dreamweaver is that I know what I want to do and I know how to do it but dreamweaver just kind of obscures things so i feel like i kind of have to work like in a fog you have to you have to figure out how it wants you to do it instead of doing it the way you already know yeah and then just more abstractly i I feel like i'm working when i'm really tired or something like that just i feel like i know how to do this why isn't this working and i it makes me feel stupid a lot of the time because i why doesn't this work this works everywhere else and i think switching to coda coda has a lot you know, they both have a lot of powerful features. Dreamweaver is a powerful app, and it's a useful app. But Coda has a narrower set of more powerful features, but they go deeper. Mm-hmm. Things like things like SSH and SVN, that sort of stuff Dreamweaver doesn't do. And so for really, really code-based web development, you kind of want a lot of those features. And Coda supplies them, but Coda kind of... They, they eliminate a lot of the other stuff that you don't need and that is kind of too old to be really necessary. Mm-hmm. And so that way, when I'm using Coda, it feels like I know what I want to do, and there I did it. It's not like I know what I want to do, and now I spend five minutes trying to figure out how I can do it comfortably. There's actually there's another feature of Coda that's really nice that I, I suspect a lot of people won't use probably mostly for support, but it's been rather beneficial for me to actually for it to actually exist. There was a Mac application that came out some time ago by the coding monkeys called Sabitha Edit. And it was the one of the first desktop applications that actually made waves in context of live collaborative editing. Uh, and I'm talking like, I think I learned about it in 2004. Uh, so this this predates Wave, this predates the collaborative Google Docs, and again, it's in a desktop application, and it's reliable, it's steady. I've, I'm sure there are instances of corruption out there, I haven't seen it. So this application, Sabitha Edit, used to be, it, it, it it's always costed like 20 to 30 bucks, and it used to be basically uh, shareware that it would be free and it wouldn't really enforce it. More recently, in perhaps the last couple of years, they locked it out to a 30-day trial that will lock you out afterwards and you will have to pay to continue. It's admittedly worth it if you're doing collaborative software by absolutely all means. Coda, to the best of my knowledge, is was one of the first very big names to actually integrate the Sabitha Edit engine for collaborative editing in it. And it's killer. I, I wasn't working on an entire site, but I opened up a Python script that uh, a coworker was going to kind of help me reorganize and help me work around. He lives in South Dakota, where, again, I live out here in Colorado. He had a VPN into the facility that I was working into. So he turns on his VPN. He pops open Sabitha Edit. I turn on Coda, open the file, share it out. He clicks on it, opens it up, and there's two cursors going crazy with a bunch of with a bunch of python code um in our respective color to identify the changes that the other person made it was multiplayer notepad with syntax highlighting it, it it's an unbelievable feature when you're in the op, when you're when you have an opportunity to collaborate with somebody else well wow, that sounds fantastic so coda is available on the mac app store i believe it's 99 dollars approximately right now 
So if you want it, go and get it. And there's a free trial. I think it's 15 days available from panic.com. You can find these episodes in our show notes at podcast.askdifferent.net or you can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you'd like to get in touch with us, leave a comment on the podcast post or email us at podcast at askdifferent.net. This has been the Ask Different Podcast, an unofficial podcast about Apple and related technologies created by members of the Ask Different community. Thank you for listening.